Well, let's take our Bibles tonight for a few minutes and turn back to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 7 this evening. This evening we're returning to a text we started into last Wednesday night. We began to work our way through it last week. And as you all know well, we, I think those of you who have been here on Wednesday nights know that we spent the last several Wednesday uh, nights wrestling with patterns in the, in the Gospels. And so we've been back through several patterns in the book of Matthew as I'm reading through the Gospels myself. And last week we took up one of the most abused verses in Scripture, uh, along with the accompanying inspired clarification. So uh, Matthew 7, verse 1 and then in verse 2, that's where we spend our time, where we read these words, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so we spent our time together last week working through these things. Tonight, we return to the passage. We want to consider the remaining portion of this text, okay? So a few verses left in the passage. Let's look at those real quick. Verses 3 through 6 continue. In the flow of thought, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Last time we began really with the question, we asked, what was Jesus actually talking about when he said what he did in this passage? And we said that there's really three big ideas found in these few verses. We laid them out last time. We said that, first of all, our Lord forbids judgmentalism, not judgment. We said there's two more thoughts. Our Lord requires humility among brethren. And thirdly, our Lord instructs discernment in ministry. Discernment in ministry. We only had time with the first of these last time. That one that says our Lord forbids judgment, not judgmentalism. And, and I hope you remember kind of where we began with Boyce's words. I just want to read his quote again. I thought it was helpful. He said that whenever Christians say that something is either right or wrong, or whenever they speak out against immoral or destructive behavior in another person, they are frequently told that they are not to judge, meaning that any behavior is right and that any attempt to deny that it is right is itself wrong. In fact, in our postmodern environment, the only acknowledged evil is claiming that someone else is mistaken. We said that really this is the, the context in which we live. This is the cultural moment as we've continued to see this develop. And in the end of our study last week, we concluded that when we consider what Jesus was talking about, we have to acknowledge the fact that when we decide to sit in judgment on our brethren as though our own standard is as important as, if not even more so, than God's we're actually putting ourselves in the place of God as though we are the one sitting on his righteous throne. And this is what Jesus is forbidding. This idea that we would sit in judgment on brethren with a spirit that literally is idolatrous. I am the one to who people answer, not God is the one to who people answer. And so we asked the question, we said, isn't it amazing how often we tend to be harsher and stricter than God in our dealings with other people? 
mean, he has given us amazing grace, and we find it so hard to give grace to others ourselves. So, so that's what we got through last time. That's as far as we got last time as we spent our time together in this text. Tonight we want to finish up the paragraph, and so we want to look at these other two thoughts. We saw last time, our Lord forbids judgmentalism, not judgment, but we want to see tonight these next two ideas. And the second one is this, our Lord requires humility among brethren. Our Lord requires humility among brethren. I think after our study last time and rereading and reviewing even tonight the text, I, would, I think we would have to acknowledge that our Lord knew very well the, self-dece- the self-deceiving and hypercritical bent of our fallen sinful hearts. I, I know I do. I mentioned to you last week. I, I feel the conviction of these texts as I read them again. I mean, I, I've gone through these texts how many times in my life, and yet I still find myself saying, ouch, when I read them again. And see, knowing what our Lord does about us in this passage, he was not about to leave us on our own. He didn't just want to leave us in our natural fallen inclinations. And he did not want those natural fallen inclinations to govern the way we think of and interact with each other, particularly in the church, with our brethren, among believers. And this is why I think he went on to illustrate in this next section what his command to judge not actually looks like among brethren. I mean, how, how, do, we, how do we handle one another? If, if the command is to not judge, does that mean we don't handle sin in each other's lives? We don't address things? We don't counsel one another? Uh, well, of course not. But he goes on to spell out what it looks like for someone to actually deal with sin in their own life and in the lives of others without falling prey to being guilty of the first command. Judge not. In that way, don't demonstrate judgmentalism. How do we live that way? Well, look again at verses 3, 4, and 5. What does he say there? Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So as he did in the previous two verses, our Lord once again addresses a a, a mindset that's pervasive in fallen, proud, self-righteous hearts. This is the, the temptation in us all. And I think it's important to remember that all of this was spoken in light of what Jesus said back in chapter 5, right? This is chapter 7, and he's, he's teaching. And in chapter 5, what did he said to them? He said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's dealing with the people who have to acknowledge they all fall short of the righteousness that they ought to have. As we've noted often when we studied through this book as a church, the the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was actually a a, a showy, a, a, a pretentious, a perceived righteousness, but it wasn't real. It, it wasn't personal righteousness. You see, the Pharisees were really good at putting on a show. They were good at, at leaving an impression of holiness. At the end of the day, though, they themselves were not truly repentant of their sins. They were not daily increasing in righteousness as they submitted their own lives to the Scriptures. 
They knew how to look the part when it suited them. They knew how to show up and look religious. How to say good words and quote scriptures and sing songs and wear right clothes and carry the right books and make sure everyone had the impression that they were the holiest among all. And he says, your righteousness had better be more than that kind of righteousness. I think it's why Jesus is calling his followers to a truer, to a, to a higher, to a deeper standard of righteousness than, than merely, did you show up on the right day? Did you wear the right outfit? Were you there at the right time? Did you sing the right words? Did you quote the right scriptures? And did you leave the right impression? And then go back to living however you please. Doing whatever you want. That's what the Pharisees did. But he said, my people don't live like that. Their righteousness is true. It has to be understood, friends, that one means of making a show of righteousness, just think about this for a minute, one means of making a show of righteousness is pointing out the shortcomings and making a big deal about the flaws in everyone else around us while minimizing or completely ignoring the sins in our own lives. Aren't we all prone to this? I mean, we know what that's like, right? Just to look around and go, wow, there's a lot of messed up people in the world and I'm glad I'm not one of them. We know how to look around us and spot wickedness. But do we see it in the mirror? See, one of the means of showing righteousness is making a big deal about everybody else's sin. Making it sound as if I have none of my own. Maybe even coming to think that I have very little of my own, if any. I want to take note of the things that Jesus actually says in the text. Just, just watch the passage. Notice, notice what we find here. First, in the passage, I want you to note the way that Jesus warns about, about seeing the speck in another's eye while being completely oblivious to the log in your own eye. Just look at the language again. Verse 3, he said it there. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? You see, just hear that language. You, he says, you, it's like you've got this, this radar that just, it, I mean, beep, beep, beep. You see everybody else's sin. You can see it so plainly. I mean, it lights up the screen. You don't miss a thing in anybody else's life. And you don't even notice. You've got a log sticking out of your eye. Like it's, you don't even see it. I don't even see it. How often do I, do I see all the stuff in others and don't even Notice the stuff in my own words, my own attitude, my own lifestyle. He uses that language. I mean, just think about it. We read this verse and I think the question is, how, how is that even possible? I mean, how is it possible to see so clearly and miss what's so obvious in my own life? But I think we have to face the facts, friends. Every one of us lives with blind spots in our lives. Every one of us has blind spots. And we desperately need others to help us see what we don't see. 
We need people who love us enough to go, hey, there's something in your beard. I need that all the time. I just, I don't see it. There's something in your beard, pastor. Hey, thanks. I, I can't see my own beard. You know, it's a wonderful thing when people let you know there's, there's something stuck on your back. They're, 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 hey, did you, did you notice there's, there's, there's a hem loose on, your, on the end of your pants or on your skirt there? That somebody's noticing things you don't notice. I don't notice. We've all got blind spots. And it's amazing how thankful we are when it suits us, right? But how about when I don't want to see it? Astounding, we each are often keenly aware of the failures in the smallest matters in another's life. But at the very same moment, we are unable to see the glaring and destructive failures in our own. Do you notice that? I see the littlest things in theirs and miss the giant ones in my own. That's the first thing he tells us. But I want you to notice, secondly, that Jesus warns against what he, what he seems to paint the picture of as feigning concern over a speck or a, or a splinter that has the potential to hinder another's eyesight while being completely blinded myself by a log that's stuck in my own eye. Verse 4, he uses the language this way, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log? In your own? And friends, it is true that a small speck of something in the eye can hinder one's ability to see. I still remember playing football in high school and played quarterback and the kid comes in and blocker stops him and something comes flying off his hand and it landed right in my eye. I could not get that eye to open. I mean, I missed a whole series of plays where we're trying to get my eye I couldn't see. It was just a little speck. It was a tiny little speck, probably a little grain of sand or something. But it was miserable for a while. Yeah, a, a, a speck of something can hinder sight. Let's be real about it, friends. A two by four, a, a four by four, sticking out of someone's head through their eye socket doesn't just blur their vision. It blinds them. It blinds them. And brothers and sisters, please don't miss the implication of our Lord's words here. A spirit of judgmentalism does not just dishonor God and do harm to others. It also blinds us to the sins and to the severity of the sins in our own lives. He says we cannot afford... To live with that kind of spirit that believes everyone else's sins matter, but mine don't. Mine are okay. Friends, this is also vital to our understanding, though, because he continues. You see, Jesus does not forbid us, though, from calling others to repentance from real and destructive sin in their lives. Like, we, we read it, this and we go, well, then I'm just not going to talk to anybody about their sins. Like, like, he's just saying, don't talk to anybody. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, rather than that, he instructs us to repent of and to deal with our own sins first so that we then can see clearly to help our brethren. 
with the specks that are in their eyes. Because guess what? We've all got problems seeing straight. It's part of our fallenness. Verse 5, he says it this way. You, you hypocrite, don't, don't fake it and leave the log in your eye. Don't, 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 don't d- distract yourself and others from the stuff that you should deal with. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then walk away and pretend out none of this ever happened. No. Take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can only imagine what that must be like to have a, a beam sticking out of your eye. You're just whacking people in the head with it while trying to help them with these little specks in their eyes. He says, no, get rid of the, get rid of the beam. Get rid of the log. And then love. Serve. Help. Far too many people seem to think that our Lord's words in this text actually just free us from any responsibility to address sin when we see it. But far from that, friends, that's not what he's saying. This text actually calls us to address sin whenever we see it, especially when we see it in our own lives. Yes, we help our brethren with the specks in their eyes. Before I go poking around somebody else's eye, I better make sure I can see. (laughs) And yet so often we use what we think we see in others' eyes as smokescreen for big problems that may be in our own. Think this through. The passage really is a call to humility. It's a call to the kind of humility that submits to the word first myself and then submits to each other. And says, I want to help you and I need your help in my life. Let's submit together to truth and let's help each other walk with clear vision because we've helped get the stuff out of each other's eyes. There's one last thing before we move on. I just want to make sure that we notice here. I don't don't want to miss this because, friends, Jesus addresses in this passage the perspective that we should have on the sins we see in our lives Versus the sins we see in other people's lives, particularly the lives of our brethren. You see, in these verses, our Lord tells us that we should see the sins in our brothers' lives as a speck or a splinter, some sawdust. And at the same time, however, he tells us that we should see the sins in our own lives as a log. I think one of the sad realities of our sinful pride is that we usually think in the exact opposite terms, don't we? Everybody else has logs to deal with. I may have a few specks. And what did Jesus say? Now, as far as you're concerned, You have logs and everybody else has specks. As far as I should be concerned, I have logs and everybody else has specks. Just think about it. Everything, everything in our fallenness wants to think of the sins that we see in others as logs 
while downplaying our own sinful motives, our own sinful thoughts, our own sinful deeds, our own sinful words as merely, merely specks. This just, no, it's no biggie. Don't, don't look there. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. But friends, our Lord was clear that you and I must have a humble heart a humble mindset that truly thinks of our own sins as the worst ones in the room. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, as a fallen sinner, I have a hard time with this. I don't know if anybody else would join me in that acknowledgement or not, but I have a hard time with that. Walking into a room and thinking, my sins are the worst ones. But that's exactly what Jesus commanded of his own. That when we come together, my sins, as far as I'm concerned, are the worst. This is exactly what a friend of mine, Chris Anderson, gets at when he defines what he calls a culture of grace. We've had him come here in the past, and he's taught us about this. But as he talks about a culture of grace in the church, and he defines it this way. He says, a culture of grace is a culture in which I am more aware of my own sin than anybody else's, and more aware of God's grace than either your sin or mine. A culture in which I'm more aware of my own sins than anybody else's, but more aware of God's grace than either your sin or mine. Brothers and sisters, we have to face the fact that humility in the midst of and in light of our sinfulness is not something that any of us do very well. We just, we just don't. We, we struggle with this. We struggle with this. And in this text, our Lord addresses the natural bent, the natural bent of our fallen hearts. This is how we tend to think. This is how we tend to work. It's how we tend to, to speak and how we tend to interact. And the truth of the matter is that every one of us is prone toward a pride that produces, according to the text, a pride that produces a blindness to our own sin. We naturally don't see it. We don't, we don't see the attitudes. We don't see the apathy. We don't see the carelessness. We don't notice the words that just slip from our lips. We don't notice the lack of love. We don't notice the hatred that spews. We don't notice. We don't notice. We don't notice. We don't notice. We, don't notice. we just don't see it. We're blind. This pride produces a, a, a tendency to, to downplay the sins that we actually do see. I mean, we, we don't see a lot of our sins, but the ones we do, we want to make sure people think they're specs, right? We, we just we tend to downplay the ones we actually do see in ourselves. There's a natural pride in us that tends to produce a lack of genuine self, uh, selfless concern for the souls of our brethren. Selfless concern that would actually be willing to put myself at risk by trying to help you with the speck in your eye. I just, I, just don't, I just don't talk to anybody about stuff. I won't say anything hard. 
I'm not going to risk relationship like that. There's a pride in us that tends to produce a, a hypersensitivity to the sins we see in other people. My parents used to talk of my exaggerated sense of righteousness and justice as a child. I've always had that. That's wrong, and I better tell them, right? It's just, yeah, I can tell you when something's wrong. In just about anybody but me. <laughs> sense of pride that produces a proud and aggressive judgmentalism toward the sins we see in others and make such a big deal about. And friends, this is the very thing that our Lord forbids in his people. This is what he's addressing as, as he speaks in this sermon we know so well. He requires a humility, a humility among the brethren. There's one last idea that's found in one last verse, verse number, number six. You know, over the years, there's been much discussion and debate among scholars as to what exactly our Lord was talking about when he said what he did in the final verse of our text, verse number six. As I've wrestled with the text myself, I've come to believe that our Lord was instructing a, a discernment in ministry. What did he say in verse six? Look at the language. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Commentators seem agreed about how to piece together the phrases that make up this verse. They kind of run things together in the second half as it's, as it's written there. But I want you to notice that what we would read it, I think, accurately would be to say it this way. Do not give dogs what is holy, lest they turn again and attack you. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, right? So we're trying to take what is talking about dogs and what's talking about pigs. So commentators seem agreed that what seems to be being said here is this. Do not give dogs what is holy, lest they turn and attack you. And to the pigs, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. There's a couple of key questions I think anybody studying the scriptures like this would have to ask, and, and it would be questions like these. So, so who are the dogs and the pigs, right? I mean, what's he talking about? Who are the dogs and the pigs that Jesus is talking about here? I mean, what, what do what is holy and pearls refer to in this passage? We're going to do our best here. We might not have it all nailed or ironed out, I should say, by the end, but I think it's, I'm going to try to give you something that's helpful tonight. Most scholars that I have studied seem agreed that what is holy and pearls refer to the sacred and extremely valuable things of God. The sacred and extremely valuable things of God. Uh, namely, the truths that are revealed in Scripture. Things that we should embrace and value and esteem. There's been much discussion and debate, though, about who the dogs and the pigs are in the passage. What's it talking about when it talks of these people? And various things have been offered. Some scholars have suggested that these terms refer to the Gentiles. So some say these are the Gentiles, the, uh, since these were words that were used as common slurs in that day against those people, for those outside the chosen people of God. 
In other words, their thinking went something like this. They might have said um, that Jesus is forbidding the evangelization of Gentiles. Something's been referred to as the Gentile mission. So Jesus was telling the Jews, don't evangelize Gentiles, some scholars have said. But I would argue, as you know your Bible, that none of that is consistent with God's mission in the world and, or consistent with the things that Jesus himself did and uh, leading the Samaritan woman to himself and telling her the gospel. I mean, this is not in keeping with what Jesus' own ministry looked like. So, so clearly that that's, can't be what it's talked about, but that is suggested, okay? Others have proposed that these terms refer to a class of people who are unworthy of the gospel. So a class of people unworthy of the gospel, we would not bother to share it with them. In other words, what they're suggesting is that Jesus is forbidding us from, from wasting the gospel on people who seem antagonistic toward it and who most likely will reject it anyway, so don't bother speaking it to them. But again, that idea seems completely inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. With our Lord's own ministry and what His apostles did. Our scriptures tell us to, as a church, seek to evangelize the world, even those who will hate and persecute us, even those who might seek to kill us for it. Speak it anyway. As I've read this text and studied it, a more plausible interpretation of these things seems to me that Jesus was simply referring to people who are incapable of understanding the value of what is being offered to them. And who tend to respond antagonistically to ministry. And commentator Craig Keener, very gifted commentator looking at historical contexts, puts it this way. In his commentary, clearly he says, these are people who do not value what the disciples have to offer them, like swine who find what looks like peas or acorns to be inedible instead. There would be things in that day that would fall into a pig pen that looked a lot like food, but they were little rocks or inedible food. Sometimes pigs would chew on them, break teeth, find infections would come. It would create great problems for them because what they thought was food wasn't. They didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't discern the difference between things. Pigs and dogs are hungry, but they, they are incapable of discerning the difference between pearls and acorns. I can't tell the difference. They can't tell the difference between what is holy and the garbage that they root through in the streets hoping to find their sustenance. In light of all this, then, we need to ask and answer the question, what are we to take away? And what is it, as he, he's making this analogy between pigs and dogs that can't discern what's holy and what's not and, and, and just can't make sense of what's there. What are we to discern or to take away from that? Well, I would say that Jesus is calling us to be discerning in the way that we minister. Just think about it, friends. If pearls are unhelpful to pigs because they mistake them for acorns, then why in the world would you keep throwing pearls to pigs? There's a point at which even the apostles shook the dust off their feet after ministering and said, we're done with this place. We're moving on. 
If dogs turn and attack you when, you when they figure out that what you're giving them is a holy thing instead of food, why would you not use some discretion in the way that you approach them? He seems to be saying this, you, you, don't, you don't have to keep on wasting holy things when it's rejected. It's very interesting to me, but it seems that far too many of God's professing people display very little wisdom and discernment when it comes to what they do with truth. When they go about their ministry to the lost. Time and again, otherwise well-meaning people who would evangelize seem to in, invite the attacks of the lost with, with proud and condescending words. Let's pick a fight. Let's not minister to souls. Ooh. Rather than seeking to win and convert them, they, they rile them up almost like a bullfighter with a red cloth shaking it in front of their face rather than inviting them to Jesus. No, let's just let's pick a fight. I think Jesus is looking at us and saying, don't be foolish with the precious truth that I've given you. Minister carefully. Minister wisely. Minister humbly. Be discerning. Go into the cities and preach the gospel, but there's a point at which... Like I said, even Peter and Paul knew when to shake the dust from their feet and go to the next town. I think this is the discernment Jesus is calling for as he says to his own, don't cast your pearls in front of pigs, lest they trample them. Don't keep throwing holy things to dogs, lest they attack you. Jesus is calling us to humble, discerning ministry that reflects the character of the God we serve. You know, it's interesting to note that our Lord uses very similar language in the terminology of the tech, next text in the passage. Verses 9 to 11, I just want you to look at the language there. I'm not going to teach it. It just says this, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I just want you to ask yourself this question tonight, friend. If God only gives good, helpful, nourishing gifts to those who ask, then why would I ever insist on, insist on ministering in ways that are less than helpful? Our God gives good gifts, graciously ministers the truth. He does what is helpful. Should I not do the same rather than insist on or do this in my way? rather than his. It's astounding to me that all through this passage, Jesus is calling on us to recognize something. From start to finish, he has told us that we will be, as sinners, judged ourselves one day. That we, as sinners, who see sins in everybody else, need to recognize that as far as I'm concerned, my sins are the greatest. 
And he says, I've given you holy things and you're going to minister with them. But recognize the propensity, the tendency in you and in me to not do what is always best with those holy things he's given me. I need to be wiser than I often tend to be. Tonight, then, what I want to do is this. I want us to go to prayer, and I want us to pray as those who confess our natural bent toward pride that blinds us to our own sin. My sin, your sin. And I want us to pray as those who confess our natural lack of wisdom when it comes to life and ministry. I was at Pastor Dave's new church on Sunday, and as the assistant pastor was charging their congregation, he was using a phrase. He said that uh, not every idea is a good idea. He said often people will come into a church setting and say, hey, pastor, I think we ought to. And he said, if you hear the phrase, well, that's an idea. Take it for what it's worth, right? And he said, guess what? We all have lots of ideas. And a lot of them are just that, ideas. But there's something in our pride that tends to think, if I can think it up, it's wisdom. No, you and I could think up a lot of foolish things. So let's acknowledge our lack of wisdom and run to the one who always does what is wise. And ask him, would you guide our steps? Would you guard our hearts and our mouths and our means and our methods? Would you do in us and through us what's best? So let's confess this bent of pride that blinds us to our sin and our lack of wisdom. And then let's pray as those who, as our text told us tonight, confess our own sins and who serve our sinning brethren selflessly and who minister with Christ-like discernment. And this, I believe, is what Jesus is calling us to tonight. All right?